Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Lycanography, the podcast that codifies the canon of films from one of the world's greatest animation studios, Lyca. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm feeling boxed in. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Lyca. Welcome back, listeners. Jake, Steph, welcome back. This week, I have the 80s one-hit wonder classic, Living in a Box by Living in a Box, stuck in my head. <laughs> it should just be the bedding music for the entirety of this this podcast episode, really. So uh, how are we feeling about the lycanography now with the third episode in? Jake, still still excited, still seeing how it goes? I mean, you just immediately got me thinking of songs that have box in them and like, now now I'm just thinking, where am I in the lycanography? Am I at the rude box phase? Ooh. Uh, like, have we have we crossed over from the millennium and DJ era and now we're trying to be edgy and cool and really no one actually likes it and we, we don't want to, in fact, shake our rude box trolls to anyone and it was a bad decision. Uh, maybe we'll get into that. Maybe that's the point in the lycanography that I'm at, Michael. Any um, box bangers coming to mind, Steph? No. All I can think <laughs> is I would like to crawl under a cheese bridge for this episode. <laughs> That's the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, right? <laughs> the cheese bridge. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like my should... only friend is the box that I live in. <laughs> Boxes of angels. <laughs> That is a good playlist idea, though. I think a box playlist would be quite good. I'm already thinking of Man in the Box, Alice in Chains. We've got um, Heart Shaped Box, Nirvana. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If there is a Cheese Bridge song out there, <laughs> maybe we could do our own cover uh, in uh, tribute to this week's film, of course, which is The Box Trolls, the third feature from Leica Studios. Um, we should kick things off, as we always do, with a bit of synopsis. But before we do, we always go quite spoiler-heavy, on this, if you've not seen the box trolls and you want to preserve the mystique and mystery, um, 
pause, go away and watch it. We'll be here when you come back. Uh, but Steph, can you set things up for us with some synopsis, please? Yeah, Steph, can can you read the synopsis in the style of Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer, but as the box trolls? <laughs> I'll have to go away and uh, work out what that is, what you just said. CX was raised by box trolls. All right, let's do synopsis. Orphaned at infancy, Eggs was raised by box trolls, underground dwellers who scavenged the streets of Cheesebridge by night. A surprise encounter with a human girl leads to unexpected discoveries about his mysterious past and his imprisoned real father. So, Michael... Now's the time to step up. You must reveal to us how how were these boxes constructed? You know, how how did this world come into being? What is Cheesebridge and what do we know about it? Tell us the story. Well, let's call this section the unboxing. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, so we mentioned in the last episode, the Paranorman episode, that this film, The Box Trolls, had been in on the development slate at Leica since before even Coraline was released. It was unveiled to the world, though, um, in 2013, ahead of a 2014 release, but it had been in development for a long time before that because they'd bought the rights to adapt the kids' book Here Be Monsters by Alan Snow. Um, and what they were working on over that long period of time was a lot of trimming and condensing and various treatments that led them to heavily kind of shaping the book because it was quite an epic, complex books stuffed with ideas and characters and they're just focusing because of course it's called here be monsters so it's all different types of monsters living in this world so they're just focusing on one type which is the box trolls and um the term that comes up in interviews which is attributed to travis knight that they keep talking about about this process was ruthless economy to get this big kids book down to what would be a 90 minutes so guys on reddit movies (laughs) (laughs) yeah Exactly. Um, we said last time that Leica had start bringing in directors from other studios and backgrounds to step into Henry Selick's shoes. And this time the directors are um, Anthony Stacci, who worked in the 80s and 90s as a visual effects animator for places like Industrial Light and Magic. He had credits on films of that period like Back to the Future and Hook and Ghost. Um, and he even worked on James and the Giant Peach as well. Um, but by this point, he'd um, worked up a couple of notches in his belt as a director. He co-directed Open Season, the CG animated Sony film from 2006. And he was co-directing alongside uh, a guy called Graham Annabel, who has a really cool career, if I may say so. So he started And off a cool cartoon- name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he started off as a cartoonist. Um, but worked for years at LucasArts, the video game company spin-off of Lucasfilm. And he had credits as an animator and designer on some of their amazing point-and-click adventure games from the 90s, like Full Throttle and Curse of Monkey Island. And then afterwards, he went to work with Telltale Games, which is the company set up by veterans. It's almost like the Studio Ponoc of LucasArts. It was set up by (laughs) veterans of LucasArts, um, wanting to make films in the spirit of those 90s adventure games. Um, He... And Graham Annabel um, 
created a series called Puzzle Agent for them. But then he was brought into Leica um, as a story artist, storyboard artist on Coraline and Paranorman, and then worked his way up to co-director here. But of course, the man behind it all is uh, Travis Knight. He's the guy at the helm of Leica overall. So uh, as always, let's see what he has to say about this project and the production. And here's a quote from the announcement press release for the film from 2013. The Box Trolls is a visually dazzling mashup of gripping detective story, absurdist comedy, and steampunk adventure with a surprisingly wholesome heart. It's Dickens by way of Monty Python. Tony and Graham have crafted a strange and beautiful world replete with fantastical creatures, good-for-nothing reprobates, madcap antics, and rip-roaring feats of daring do. But at its core, like all Leica films, The Box Trolls is a moving and human story with timelessness and powerful emotional resonance. That's the first time I've seen Travis Knight as almost the Toshio Suzuki of Leica, because mm. he's talking up a big game there. Let's he see really whether is. that pans out really with the film that we've watched. But Dickens by way of Monty Python, I mean, I'm not sure how much that really is reflected in the film, but that's reflected in the choice of the voice cast. It's very British heavy. You have Ben Kingsley and Rich Iowade, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost. They even get Eric Idle to come in and co-write the theme song for the film. Um, so tonally, it's quite a shift away from Paranorman, which was that suburban American feel. And in fact, they've really positioned this film as something very different to what had come before, more of a comedy adventure and specifically more of a kid's film. Here's a quote from Anthony Statue. We actively wanted to go for a younger audience. There's no supernatural horror element like in Coraline or Paranorman, so we skewed it younger. We tried to make it a bit more colourful, the scenes that aren't underground at night. We tried to make them brighter than the usual stop-motion movie, which tend, and I don't know if it's because of stop-motion or because of the people who make them, they tend to go in a creepy direction, with Tim Burton sort of looming over the whole art. So if you remember that quote from a previous episode where they said that Leica was to the left of Pixar, to the right of Nightmare Before Christmas, this is them shifting the needle even further towards maybe the Pixar end of things. There's another interview where the directors are both talking about the sorts of film they're drawing inspiration from. They say Terry Gilliam films like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. They talk about Jean-Pierre Jeunet's Delicatessen. Um, and another quote from Anthony Stacci here. People go, oh, you guys make horror movies for kids. And we go, no, we make Merchant Ivory movies for kids. We make Barry Lyndon with monsters. I mean... There's a lot. These, these are oh, a lot of names and films to be throwing around here, and I don't really think the film can really. Uh, bear I mean, I would love to see like a, a stop motion version of Maurice or something, like an actual Merchant <laughs> Ivory stop motion film. But this, exactly. this, none of these films are that. I, they, I guess that's shorthand for they're taking a lot of inspiration from British humour, British comedy, British fantasy fiction etc i suppose because it there's, there's very little to compare it with something like barry lyndon the stanley kubrick film uh, but these points of difference also come across on a um technological level and it's fascinating to hear the directors talk about where Leica are now uh, with the developments in tech behind the scenes all the things we talked about face replacement technology color 3d printers remote operated cameras using using previs to pre-visualize scenes and what they call rapid prototyping which is modeling within the computer and fabricating the 3d printer um, therefore cutting out the human hand completely almost uh, in terms of the fabrication of the puppets um, the tech is always it's now a real key part of the promo trail particularly 
with this film and the headlines are all about how Leica has revolutionized stop motion and there's some quotes from Travis Knight here that I think really nailed this it used to be you'd have to carve parts in wood or sculpt them in clay to get all these different replacements now we just model it all in the computer and print them out as we want them as a sculptor you could never get that kind of fine detail I think that feeds into this broader ethos of the look and feel of the films um, his Anthony Stacci saying how sometimes with stop motion you can feel like you're on a tabletop. We didn't want that. We wanted at every opportunity to see the horizon, to treat the stop motion footage like live action footage, rather than the naive conceit of smoke is made of cotton, rain is made of gelatin. We wanted realistic effects. You never get thrown out of the movie. Fantastic Mr. Fox is great, but it pushed that to a degree where you always knew you were looking at a little doll. So that already that feels like we've gone on this arc of a journey within this miniseries, right? Because I think Henry Selleck always likes to like to foreground the idea that there's this these handmade characters come to life, and now Leica really want you to not even think of that. Well, like which this. is mad when like so often you see comments that are like, "Oh, uh, you know, the best part of the Leica film is seeing the the handmade behind the scenes bit in the credits," and like they're putting that in the film, but then. Mm really making an effort to not show it as well mm -hmm. really bizarre. removing all of the all of the wires and cables and yeah yeah but I, you did say the behind the scenes stuff is amazing and we do tend to focus on the quotes from the filmmakers there there are still a couple of hundred technicians behind the scenes working on this and Leica are very good on their youtube channel and if you dig even further in the youtube searches you know, with you know, documenting and releasing behind the scenes footage and I'd really recommend just going and checking those out if you have a spare lunch hour one day just some amazing craftspeople um, who we don't have time to talk about have worked on these films um, but anyway Box Trolls premiered at the Venice Film Festival August 2014 and came out in cinemas September that year it grossed over 100 million on a 60 million dollar budget so sort of plateauing almost at that sort of paranormal level of, of, uh, of box office receipts. And it continues the Leica streak of Best Animated Feature nominations. It doesn't win, but that does, leads us as always to the quiz time. So this is, I guess it would be the Oscars in early 2015. What else was nominated that year? Uh, Best Animated Feature. We've already covered two films in the category this year on this podcast over the years. Uh, the Wind Rises? Nope. You you jumped the wrong way. The Breadwinner? Or equivalent? You've both had good instincts, but you're just sort of one film off in, bo in, in, in both cases. <laughs> oh, Princess Kaguya? Princess Kaguya. And Song of the Sea. Mm. Good picks. And How to Train Your Dragon 2? How to Train Your Dragon two and then what one how to train your dragon two no how to train your dragon two was nominated oh right, okay disney won this year did they now oh um is it like a is it a um zootopia nope moana nope big hero six big hero six oh, God. yeah wow baymax is out of all of nine. those yeah. big hero six i mean i like that film but there are some like incredible films in there 
I mean, that's how to train your dragon too. <laughs> but there we are. We are fully up to date with the box trolls from uh, inception to release. Um, but we now need to see, is it <laughs> Dickens by way of Monty Python? Is it Barry Lyndon with monsters? What is it? We should find out in our review section. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So we can do some something a little different for this episode. Because, Steph, you have extra context the box trolls that we don't have because you have read is it one book or is it a series of books that this is based on so i was trying to work this out because i have a giant yeah book version of here be monsters and i think it's just all one book but it's split maybe it was split into smaller books at some point um the internet's not super helpful and i'd have to go go back to my childhood home to to dig out the book and find it um but yeah um my dad read this to me when I was quite young um I think a few times and it's one of those weird books where I really enjoyed it as a kid kind of went away and forgot about it and then every now and again something would make me think of it and be like, oh my, yeah that hippie monsters what a strange little kind of weird very English tale of cheeses roaming around the countryside with legs and miniature sea cows and a laundry on a river that's completely run by rats and just all this kind of very strange but very charming um world in in one book um and this film is just to be honest for me like completely missed what that book is all about i think michael like you said in the context you know it's a very big book there's a lot going on there's like three different stories within um the one whole whole book um but i think all that condensing has just meant that they're left with like 
nothing of the original book. Um, they have the box trolls, and that's about it, really. And you know, the the vague kind of atmosphere of cheese. Um, and it's really strange that, yeah, they've just completely gone with this in this direction with the story it makes it from what you've said there Steph it sounds like the book is is kind of uh, ch- charming and quite sweet in its representations of these surreal creatures whereas the film seems to go down more of a slightly creepy absurdist route with them I think it's it's interesting because something I definitely remembered a lot from the book was that all these kind of weird little creatures exist in Cheesebridge and the higher society really want like miniature pets. So um, they're all being turned into like really cute miniatures. So there's like a miniature box troll, a miniature freshwater sea cow, I think they're called. And like a min, I think there's like a miniature cheese at some point or something like that. Um, a baby bell. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's definitely like dark stuff. And there's a lot like bits where the kind of subplot is that um they're hunting cheeses so they can all eat cheese and there's like this really horrible scene where they like dip a cheese into like a molten vat of cheese and the cheese like dies it's like really really dark so there's definitely dark stuff in there um but yeah it's quite interesting because i think i don't know there's definitely a really interesting story about you know miniaturization of pets and overbreeding and that kind of stuff um, that probably would have been really interesting to see and probably really cool to animate, like animating miniature versions of like the larger characters. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a point of like, there's so much going on because they could have mm. done a whole story about the laundromat that's on the river and it's run by ex-pirates and they're all rats. Like there's, <laughs> there's so many different angles that they could have come at it from. But then I think the way that they've done it is, oh, the box trolls are cute. I definitely read a couple of reviews that were like the box trolls are like minions. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like yep. they've gone on that kind of, they're really cute and funny and we can just have a lot of fun with them. Um, and then I think it's just completely missed the tone of the book, which I think is like a, it's like charmless Ardman in mm. is the way that it's turned out for me. But then, you know, I'm coming at it from somebody who has read the book and has a close attachment to it. And I know, you know, when film adaptations come out, I, I don't always love the people who are like, this is nothing like the book. I hate it because, you know, you're bringing, sometimes you're bringing that book to new audiences, but I don't see how this is doing that at all. It seems mm. like a complete separation. It, it does strike me as very funny that um, Paranorman, their suburban um, American-based film, was the one directed by two British people. Mm. And now this is the one that isn't being handled by British people, and they want it to be such a sort of to- you know a tribute to British humour and sensibility. But it sounds like they just missed the mark slightly, and instead it goes. I, I read an interview. I think it was a Travis Knight one, or maybe one of the directors, where they said they talked. They talked about the the world of the book and how the, all the laundry was done by rats and things like that. And they said they had to get rid of that because they had to make. They didn't want the audience to be confused as to why would the box trolls be that strange if they also have rats running around doing their laundry. And already that is so, so much more a Hollywood approach to fiction rather than an absurdist yeah. British well, tradition. And of it's, like, it's anything goes. It's a world we're building. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's limiting the scope of the world. Um, and I think you, if, 
Like that's what we love about animation, and we've talked about it so often. Is when we when we watch this these great animators, it's the creatures and the designs that they come up with, and the and the world that they fill them with. And it's like this this does just feel like a, a walled city in which there are humans who have steps of cheese, and these blue troll creatures, and not much else. And stuff. It sounds like it should be that like around every corner there is a, a new exciting thing that you've never seen before that's wild and fun and in theory would be a great thing for animators to sink their teeth into and to try and create mm. yeah because i think um well i guess yeah you know, we talked in the the selic portion of the miniseries about animating different creatures and then we've we talked quite a lot in paranorman about um you know the very human movements that all of their kind of characters have and how kind of real to life they are but i think it's a shame yeah that they they have gone in that direction where it's you know 70 percent humans and 30 percent is just box trolls who are kind of humanoid anyway mm. and there's not really anything else weird i guess apart from the, the giant cheese that rolls down the mountain uh yeah this is something that again it's um you know almost a uh on screen and behind the scenes thing now you go and watch some of the behind the scenes stuff and actually every single box troll is like a completely new feat of um stop motion puppetry because they had to create a box and then a puppet that could fit with inside each box and th this is sort of almost calling back to what i said in the context where once they remove all of the sense of the actual tactility and fragility of the characters on screen you just presume it's all movie magic and no actually they they had to, they had to figure out all of how to have heads that would be able to fit within the boxes and then substitute smaller heads so that they would you know be able to peek out and all this stuff and that all the legs and limbs would have to fit inside so there's still a lot of like genius craft work going on behind the scenes it's just not so much felt on screen because i can imagine henry Selick's approach to this would be to pack in as many creatures as possible mm -hmm. and daz dazzle you that way mm -hmm. but instead there's a bit more of a focus then on concept artwork and design because the humans are um grotesque and stylized in a different way to paranorman um and the world feels different i think the concept art for the world was uh, inspired by the um uh european uh band dessine graphic artist uh, nicola de cressy um and if you go and look at some of his work it's very that's sort of those um, particularly the town and the winding narrow streets going up this hill and the sort of um, you know looming lanky buildings is very much his sort of work and then there's Michel Breton and August Hall who did a lot of the character designs and concept artwork there's, a, there's definitely a look to this it's just again um, whether that is suitable for so let's talk about the tone because they talk a bit. They talk a lot in that context section about how this wants to be more for kids. We've already mentioned Minions. This is very much a post-Despicable Me <laughs> like a film. Which d does that pan out well? Because we talked about how Coraline was really this creepy kids movie. Paranorman had elements of that horror stuff, but it was more of a straightforward, maybe approach a more straightforward uh, animated feature of the time. And now this, where's this going, Jake, in terms of the tone for you? Um, it's a, it's a really strange one because I th I think they still they're still kind of clinging on to we want to be slightly quirky creepy 
kids films and i know that it is slightly more kid friendly but you can still trace that dna back to back to Coraline and back to Selleck's work before that um and i think kubo is is the moment that they really kind of jump off into more just classical kids adventure i i think this is a a very odd film because in a way it's totally bang average i i, I don't think it's reaching for many more emotions than we've seen in other kids films I don't think it has much more that's interesting interesting to say. I, I think, unfortunately, whilst I think it's interesting to look at and, like, the human figures have that kind of gaunt marionette quality and they've got that blue kind of base coat to them and as if they've been painted over, like, I like that. But the whole film is actually quite ugly. Like, I, I don't think it's... Considering the amount of effort that's put in, it's a shame to say, I don't think it's a, a pleasure to look at. Um, and I, I do wonder if, if that will that work for, for kids as well. Because I suppose we've the wonder that you have looking at these films is something that makes you want to go back to them. And like whether that's the garden in Coraline or the spirits in Paranorman or just like all the landscapes in Kubo. I never felt like in Box Trolls there was that moment where you think, oh, I've got to pause the screen and scan every every section of it to see what I'm missing. Um, then again, there are some elements of it that I think are really interesting. And it's, in some cases rightly, and in some cases wrongly, the the most politically engaged <laughs> film that they've made as well. I think it's it's really kind of wanting to engage with like class and privilege and, and fascism and mob mentality stuff. And that's fascinating. Uh, and it kind of dips a toe in the water there, which is more ambitious than the previous films that have done that are far more rooted in more personal stories rather than societal ones. Um, but, and we'll get to it in the, our conversation as well, like it, it kind of betrays itself with its philosophy as well. It's, um, yeah, it's a real odd one. But but going back to what you said about the boxes, uh, it's interesting to hear about the, um, the work that went into the box trolls themselves because maybe my favourite parts of the animation are the mechanics of the box trolls, like the way that they slot together and like they might form a staircase or a ladder or a wall and watching them fold or unfold or whatever they might do that like has a real tactility to it and a real like satisfying quality to it like it's the same feeling had like in maths i never really got the numbers but i loved when you build nets when you'd have to cut up the paper to make a cube and then fold it up and see how it fits together and i could really feel that work going into the box trolls and yeah a mixed bag on this one like where i don't think the film is particularly great but then again i think there's a lot more interesting stuff going on than in paranorman maybe mm. i don't know mm. what do you two think yeah. i think the fact that they the box trolls are obsessed with things that are mechanical and you know they they love clocks and making things work and knowing how like the insides of 
little kind of mechanical object work and then yeah jake what you said about you know the way that the box trolls actually work and fit together i think that stuff is really interesting just because you know watching a stop motion animation film you want to know how everything works and you you almost want to see that inside clock ticking um kind of secret of how everything runs so smoothly so i guess it's yeah a bit of a shame that this film is so smooth and kind of as ugly as i also think it is um as well like animated as it is because you almost want to see a bit of that like roughness and and hand element yeah, on it well like there's the bit where they enter the box trolls world through the sewer system and then it's onto a factory line and that is great but that's also very very similar to the same sequence in james and the giant peach when they first get into the peach and you see how this world works and you see the characters within it and it's got that roll call feeling but in james and the giant peach it had that uh i don't know you, you felt like you could see it being made more um mm-hmm. like that's not to say this this is not a good scene like this is a great scene here as well but i don't know like it just felt like w- we could have been watching this in cgi at points yeah i think everything i said about in the paranormal episode where it feels like even the way they're using the camera and using the space now is really shifted and it just camera placement feels like it's a suddenly a different art form completely there are whole sequences and set pieces in this that um that that have that for me here there's the chase sequence early on the film where the lad's going across the rooftops and kicking up roof tiles and everything and there's a really brilliant behind the scenes video almost from i think it goes from storyboard to what they shot to what we see on screen which really shows what they did and in a way the middle part of that is the most compelling footage for me rather than the cleaned up finished footage because again i think as I, as we said on the previous episode anything that feels magical here it just feels like movie magic now it doesn't feel like somebody you're watching somebody work and that's clearly what they're going for as a studio so i suppose they're they're successful on their own terms really steph i'm really interested about the story aspect because i've not to to be fair you may have, may have forgotten in the many years but like what elements here are, have they brought to this story is the kid the idea of the kid being taken by the box trolls and the box trolls being this sort of stigmatized underclass is that all in the book because it's the story structure is what's interesting for me here yeah i think in the book the boy still lives underground but he lives with his grandpa and i think mm-hmm. his grandpa's like an inventor or something um and i I can't remember if they live... He wasn't, like, raised by box trolls. But I think they, like, live with them and they're friends with them. But they are, like... Um, I think they're more of, like, a coveted item in the right. in the world. I can't remember so, if they're, like, super scary and they'll steal your babies or anything like that. But are they being... Are they still being hunted? Yeah, so they're being, like... like a lot of the creatures are being hunted so that they can be made... They can be shrunk down into miniatures so that mm-hmm. all the like wealthy ladies can like have them in their handbags as like little pets rather than being hunted as pests or whatever the way yeah i think so and i'm pretty sure that's that's how it is um, because what strikes me watching these films um again in close proximity is how much it 
it, it, it feels like it shares story beats with Paranorman. The idea of the mob mentality, the idea of this specific set of characters that are being misunderstood, the idea of like the child being the um, uh, the, the moves between those two worlds and can um, can hopefully resolve it at the end. And this is, I suppose, we could call this the story time segment, Jake, because uh, one of the if this if we had a word cloud of, of this mini series, the word story is going to be mm. one of the big ones, um, like a love story, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they really, really do. Uh, everything has to be about the story, and I, I do wonder, like, like when they're when when the animators are reading the scripts, uh, or be, like script editors, whoever they might be, um, thinking, constantly talking about story, isn't the most engaging thing to put on screen. <laughs> uh, and if you want to have that as your metaphor make make it a metaphor and tell it through the actions of the story rather than having the story talk about the story because <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in this one again almost the the underlying framework is based on a store a like local legend of a child mm. <laughs> uh, either being kidnapped or killed in the, in, in in the case of um, paranorman and then it's about retelling or reshaping that story that is the ending and people who are willing to hear it or not willing to hear it um being that that's the sort of the dividing line between the goodies and the baddies almost um the baddie in this one we've not really had i mean the other mother is definitely a baddie but more in a monster movie villain way but this is the first time we've had like a, a sort of a bad actor baddie oh but michael world, are, are, are we the baddies uh, i feel like we might be the baddies in this film but I, I feel like maybe our actions maybe might suggest that we're not very good and maybe we are the baddies we can't be can we god so annoying <laughs> well <laughs> Um, I've forgotten his name. Is it? Is it? Uh, is it? It's not. Is it? Not Snatcher. It's. Yeah, Snatcher cr- is the. He's called. Sna- he's actually called. No, yes, he's not the child catcher. Jenkinsley, he's Snatcher. Right. Yes, because it's of course it's very um, uh, chitty chitty bang bang in mm. his sort of vibe. Um, guy running around town with a van to throw throw little things in. I think in the um, book he is hunting cheese. Oh. Not. So he's hunting like the free range cheeses on legs that roam around and dipping them into the, the hot cheese. Bag. And does he also love cheese to the point that he'll explode? Because that would then make more sense. I, re- I think he must love cheese. Right. I'm going to have to go away and read this book again and maybe we can do a book <laughs> club on it. But uh... it's, it's, Steph, this is some very rare lactose intolerant representation on screen. Um, yeah. You're, you're, you're not a cheese eater. We'll talk about a relatable character, who, villain. <laughs> A villain that you relate to, um, yeah, such a such a tragic story of a man who just wants to eat cheese and and just explodes every time he eats it. Um, yeah, I think it's quite it's quite fun, um, and I think that scene where he first eats the cheese and then starts kind of puffing up um, mm. is is really well done. Um, I think it's one of the, I guess, the rarer scenes where it's story but it's also a chance for kind of a bit of spectacle it's like that the scene in Coraline where they go to the little mouse circus and you just see a little mouse circus for a little bit for the sake of it 
Um, so yeah, I think it's it is really fun, and I, I there's parts of that character that I really like. I really like Ben Kingsley's um, voice acting in it. I think he's so like panto villain the way he like draws out all of his words and he's really kind of nasally and and i think he's he's fitting the brief that they're trying to sell in the press releases yeah but i think the yeah i guess the kind of um paradox of him loving cheese and wanting to join this higher society that only eats cheese and then being allergic to cheese it's kind of like the start of the story's downfall in that it has all these contradictions, but I don't think it really knows what to do with them to make it into a clear message. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot going on in the story that when it tries to come to a conclusion and have its final big statement, it's just contradicted itself like five minutes earlier. So you, mm. you're just kind of left with this big cheesy mess. Um, yeah, it's a little bit strange. I think that that's another recurring thing. We'll see that maybe with Kubo as well, where Laika have to do this sort of hard handbrake turn at the end to reintroduce what the theme is. Almost the entire film stops to say, actually, this is what the real point of the movie was. And sometimes you're thinking, was it really? Mm-hmm. Um, but one other question, Steph, because something we've, we've when we announced we were going to do the, the Lycanography, we did have tweets about the box trolls in particular and the Madame Fru Fru character when snatcher dresses up as a woman to sort of infiltrate high society halfway through the film um was that an aspect from the book or is that something they've brought in here do you remember i really don't remember and also i was like you know seven no that, that, that's fine um, so i don't think it's... it would have been something because it's definitely something in the film that's like you know it's i think it's set and i think the book is also set in this kind of victorian time um and i guess that would have still been a time when you know men were dressing as women like drag and panto is a big part of mm. like british culture like the, the kind of dame who's like a man dressed as a woman so i think when that character starts by doing drag it's a very like i just kind of saw it as you know okay he's doing drag he's got a side job whatever but then there's a lot of underlying kind of stuff that the verges yeah, into like being like transphobic and i'm not no i think i think that's very true and i think like there is villainization there and there is disgust there as well mm. i think uh, like it's the line that i can't remember what whether it's not a monarchy is it whatever the, the i'm going to say the king but the the, the like lord a, it's like a, it's, yeah. he's, he's some sort Head of nobility man. isn't yeah. he yeah where he says that he regrets so much after Madame Frufru is revealed to be a man. And it it does just it leaves a real nasty taste in the mouth and mm. is and is really unnecessary. And it's um it's a shame because when the the box trolls, like minutes before or after, like nakedly reveal themselves to like show their true form and that's a big celebratory moment for the film about kind of self-representation and identity and then it just so quickly betrays it again yeah 
to me, it, it feels we've talked on this miniseries a few times actually about how these films are playing with elements of the grotesque and caricature. So they sometimes often do step on the toes of things that do feel be that politically incorrect or just a bit problematic to us, you know, from everything from Henry Selleck and the Roald Dahl fat phobia type stuff um, to, to this, I think it just exposes maybe a lack of awareness mm. Um, or may- or maybe just the very quickly shifting sands of the time where may- you know, it really was in the early, early late 2000s, early 2010s that a lot of with social media and the popularization of that, that cert- certain elements of this discourse did become more public on, on, the, on, on the public consciousness. And they just think they're doing Monty Python. They mm-hmm. think this is Graham Chapman in a dress. Um, and what's different here, and I completely sympathize with this, with this reading is that it's not the simple thing of the monty python drag characters you know he's not the messiah he's a very naughty boy etc there is a there is a there is a um a unmasking de-wigging moment in this which plays into the visual iconography the tropes and cliches of transphobic representation on screen that and that I can see that in that sequence in particular is something that didn't really feel necessary because I don't think that Snatcher wants to be Madame Fru-Fru. Mm. It doesn't really give that character enough dimension to see whether that is a true representation of his inner self or whether he is somebody who wants to also express himself in that way or anything and then society doesn't accept it. It's just, I suppose that moment is something I can see both in context and out of context as um, as reaffirming transphobic tropes of um uh trans people being dressing up as a different sex just in order to get into spaces that they shouldn't be allowed mm-hmm. into which mm-hmm. is absolutely one of the main talking points in the reactionary media about that so, you know with be at prisons or bathrooms so i can see how that really if it if it was certainly dated at the time it seems even more dated now mm-hmm. i don't think i think it's more um unthinking and they thought they were playing in um a 1960s 1970s or even 19th century british comedy context and they weren't they were making film in the 2010s so it's it's a very complicated thing and this is why we have the mailbag episode as well because we'd love to hear what other people think about these aspects of the films um so please do send us an email for the mailbag episode, uh, ghibliotech at gmail.com, and we'll share all these other opinions on these moments in the films. But I think it does also feed into something about Laika and their slightly half-cocked approach to theme. You said, Jake, this is their most politically engaged, socially engaged film, at least so far. But it's sort of slightly... It's like dipping a toe in the water. The of it. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that, because... Um, of course, the behind-the-scenes story of uh, Leica is Leica is the studio that's been created by the super-rich. <laughs> <laughs> and from the 2020s point of view, the super-rich are actually pro- what is wrong with living in late-stage capitalism. <laughs> uh, and you have a situation here where there is a class structure, where there is the super-rich, the underclass, and then a middle-class, which I guess Snatcher belongs to, or a working-class, who have aspirations to join that world. And in the end, it doesn't really assess that, doesn't really interrogate that structure. And it just has him as a pure villain. 
in a way that I think Uriah Heep and David Copperfield is also painted this way. The the sort of the worst villain is somebody who wants to be, wants to have the trappings of the upper class and will step over their fellow classmates in order to get there or uh, you know to, to to do that. But it does feel like again with Paranorman where they let off the judges and the <laughs> and the the uh, the um the uh, courtroom that sentenced that girl to death. They let them off scot free at the end in a in a way. In this one. They let the cheese-eating nobility off as well. Am I, am I right, or am I just being a bit of a lefty? Uh, yeah, like the the, so, the attempted social climate is literally explodes at the, <laughs> over the entire town like a bomb. Um, but if you were the creator of the system that allowed that to happen, you're welcomed into society as long as you take off your hat. Uh, it yeah, it doesn't quite work. Which is a shame because, like, I do think like the foundations of some really interesting stuff is there. Even just like the construction of the city, like where you, your your underclass is is literally underneath, and then you have your your middle and your and it's like it's got that high rise structure of class to it, and there you're climbing your way to the top from the very bottom, and it's yeah, it is like the 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 fascist side of it is kind of like really like they do really lean into it like proper hatred and it is it does remind you of like the the folk tales that would have been told during world war Two that would t- totally would have villainized jewish people and that like these are the stories that would have been told and that like we're seeing that with the box trolls you think no and this very much still exists now these are the stories that people say about other human beings and you can totally see even now, like those mobs getting swept up in those absolutely insane beliefs, and so I, I like, I do really like that it's going for that stuff. Um, but it, yeah, it does, it doesn't land. But I respect it for trying at least. I think it has that kind of, I guess, double-edged sword of, um, you can't change who you are. So you know, you have um, the boy and the box trolls, um. I think they're told something like you know the box doesn't matter or you're still the same without the box um and that in a way is kind of freeing for them but then on the other end of the scale for snatcher it's like you can't change who you are because you're you know you're allergic to cheese you will never reach this this kind of height of society mm. because you were born not to be yeah you can put mm. on the hat but you can't like you can't make yourself that person because you're not born into it. But yeah, it it just comes out a bit weird in the film, mm. I think, because I don't think it's saying that to snatch it in a like a sympathetic sense. It's like, you're the villain, you can't change who you are, like ha 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 you know, yeah. and then he dies. So it's kind of I don't think it's going for like a revolutionary left-leaning take in that moment i think it's more in yeah. in a chance to have like a kind of victory over him um well, i think what, it also it goes all the way back to and this is why i'd love to actually go away and read the book i think because this tension between i'm going to say british children's writing which works in surrealism or absurdity and metaphor really very deep metaphor and i can really see how having the sort of the inherent absurdity of just the white hats and the red hats and that sort of being the the, the social structure 
just being enough in the book but it's made more literal in this adaptation and then has to sit in this sort of awkward middle ground where it's not really fully exploring it but it's also not fully metaphor you know turned into metaphor um so it doesn't really satisfy either because the ending there's a version of this film where they set up that imagery a lot better and so the ending of putting the white hat in the bin is really powerful like it is it is a nice way to end the film but it doesn't like properly whack you and i think like if they did their their groundwork and they really just focused in on laying laying the imagery laying the ideas a bit better rather than just talking about the ideas then it would be more powerful and it yeah it just needed a bit more bit more work on its um yeah on its on its metaphors um michael what um, i i alluded to it earlier what did you think of um the cronies <laughs> you mean um so who who voices so simon Pegg is not one of the cronies is he so the cronies are Rich Dioade and Nick Frost. Yeah. Right? And then Simon Pegg is also somewhere else in the film. I just find those voices so ac- anachronistic, to be honest. Um, you know, Ben Kingsley brings with him, as you say, he's performing so well. Rich Dioade can only ever be Rich Dioade. Yeah. It just really. ta- immediately takes you out of the film because that's all you're yeah. hearing. That, that very strange moment, which I guess is around the time of Snow White and the Huntsman or just afterwards, where Nick Frost <laughs> was, was booking gigs <laughs> for Hollywood productions. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, but I don't know who you would have in those roles. Maybe actually... Maybe I, think, I think the roles are bad. I think they're bad characters and they're really annoying. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, like, you put anyone else in the... Like, because we're... We will get more into this in Kubo. Like, this is... a a sense of humor that children's films have now that would have started about 10 years ago, I suppose, um, that has that kind of self-awareness to it that everything has to have. And it just like with stop motion, we want immersion. We want to really settle into this brand new world. And within the film that they're kind of making us aware of the fact that we're in a film and then even the lovely, the normal nice bit of just watching the artists at work build the film in the end credits. Even that has to be, you know, a little reference to the fact that it's in a film. Mm-hmm. And I, I found it so grating. And But I, oh. I suppose it just it shows it's such a brilliant illustration of the central tension of the studio where they don't want to call too much attention to it, but they also don't really have a full um, confidence maybe in what they're doing so, so it's not like this doesn't play so perfectly as a sort of Pixar com- competitor there's just something different here and yeah the sense of humour the one that I wrote down in my notes was um, uh, what was it where's Curd's Way Milk turns into it and then there's a drum <laughs> fill they, they yeah. actually have a badum tish yeah. which I guess you know, if you're going, if you're working in a sort of nonsense literature tradition, that's a great silly gag. But I don't think a book would have a drum <laughs> cymbal crash afterwards. Um, and yeah, so I think a lot of the stuff over that end credits sequence. So the the actual end credit sequence is beautiful. Mm. All of the illustrations mm. and the animation in that. But the, uh, the 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 yammering of the two characters, I think, was just improvised in the studio. 
um, with Ayoade and Nick, Nick Frost. And um, yeah, um, I, I, I like them outside of this. I do, <laughs> um, but not so much in this. We should give one tip of the hat before we wrap up, though, to the Mecha sequence. We love a big oh, mechanical yeah. robotic really thing. Cool. How's Moving Castle? Hi, Miyazaki's big clock in the center of Tokyo. Um, what do we make of the big mecha boss? <laughs> really cool. Like, um, made me think like this could have. This is like a, a horrifying nightmare creation that Phil Tippett could have snuck into Mad God. <laughs> I think that that's maybe the best individual creation in the film, and it and it does pay off the box trolls. Uh, and the world's obsession with mechanics and because it's so lumpy and heavy uh it like you can show off the movements of it like the the individual parts that have been assembled together and it moves relatively slowly so you can really take pleasure in all of the um all of the motions that make that little beast work i was a fan absolutely watch the behind the scenes footage of that i think this kicks off something we might mention in the next episode as well as um Leica liking to have their big show-stopping massive creation in the middle of a film but that is box trolls the big question on everyone's lips right now is where does it land in the top motion leaderboard any final comments before we go over to that yes um i've prepared a game um and so very quickly uh, we haven't talked about eggs played by Isaac Hempstead, right? Um, and so I, I act completely by chance sat next to him <laughs> and watched a film that came out a few months after this, uh, and, which was very weird, just at the cinema. Uh, and I, I happened to buy a ticket and uh, was next to him in the queue. And then we watched the film together a few months after this, thinking of that relentless economy, the kind of film that dudes on Reddit would love to talk about, but is legitimately amazing. And uh, uh, summer 2015. Is that Mad Max Fury Road? Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> so. got, got a lot of good big creations in there, big monstrous mechanical stuff. Yeah, very, very strange cinema experience. How did you know it was him? Because I, uh, I knew he was a regular at the cinema because I worked there as well. Huh. Um, I just happened to um, book the same <laughs> same screening of Fury Road. Um, but there we are. That's, that's my Isaac Hempstead Wright story. Anyway, yes, on to Top Motion. Let's go around. If we can recap our individual lists and then place box trolls on it steph i'll come to you first since you have had the longest relationship with this material <laughs> um so my list at the moment is Coraline at the top nightmare before christmas then paranorman monkey bone and james the giant peach uh this is bottom for me this is honestly Whoa. like my least favorite will probably never watch it again um I really hope the book stands up to like how I remember it. I'm not sure if I should leave it in childhood nostalgia land or like revisit it, but I'm tempted to, but this is, yeah, it just kind of failed all my expectations to be honest. Um, so yeah, yeah it's bottom. Jake. Um, Coraline, James, Paranorman, Nightmare Before Christmas, Box Trolls, Monkey Bone. 
Yeah, I think I'd be similar. So mine was Coraline, Nightmare Before Christmas, Paranorman, James the Giant Peach, Box Trolls, Monkey Bone. Probably even maybe on similar pegging to Monkey Bone because Monkey Bone had more excitement for me uh, in the sort of swings You're saying craziness. Bo- Box Trolls needed to be hornier, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it, need- it could have really done with a little needle drop for sexual healing yeah. or something in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Box Trolls... Uh, at the bottom towards the bottom of the table for all of us in the top motion leaderboards we'll have to find out where the next film in our mini series kubo and the two strings lands next week that was a big film for Leica, at least uh, when it came to critical reception and at the awards so we'll see how it stands up then until then you can find us all on twitter well you can find ghibliotech on twitter at ghibliotech or on instagram ghibliotech.pod head to patreon.com slash ghibliotech for ad free episodes bonuses we're going to be doing a fantastic mr fox episode as well as uh, footnotes from me for every um, episode filling out all of the listening watching and reading that you can do off the back of the context section but you can also follow us all individually as well. Steph is on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. Jake is on Twitter at Jake H Cunningham. And Michael's there at Michael J Leader. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ying. Hi listeners, thanks for sticking with us through the credits. A very small tidbit this week. Of course, we talked about the hand of the animator coming in at the end in the closing credits, moving those uh, cronies as they talk about uh, destiny and free will. Very fittingly, those are the hands of Travis Knight manipulating the characters as he manipulates almost everything as Leica Studios. Next week, we'll see him in the director's chair, finally, with Kubo and the Two Strings. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.